Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the TF Podcast, where we discuss technology and finance. Uh, I'm Jonathan G. Blanco. Please make sure that you are subscribed to our channels uh, across social as well on the podcast and YouTube. Uh, my guest today is Taban Cosmos. Uh, he is the co-founder and CTO of Guide, uh, and i love if you could welcome him to the show. Taban, please uh, introduce yourself. Hey, thank you, Jonathan. Um, hey, um, so I am definitely the CTO and the co-founder of Guide, and uh, Guide is basically a bite-sized content app uh, designed for uh, distant learners and also uh, professionals that are looking to sharpen their skills on demand. Cool, cool, cool. Well, Tavon, I'd love to kind of get a little bit into your background. Uh, you know, I, I talked about you uh, on a recent podcast um, when we were, I was talking about superpowers and so forth. And, you know, your, your, your story is, you know, is, is uh, an inspirational one, I think. And, um, you know, I, I, love, I love that you have been able to come out of an interesting situation, to say the least, and uh, become a, a, a talented software engineer. So I'd love if you could kind of give us a little bit about your background and, you know, I'm, I'm a feeling that's going to lead the conversation. Yeah. Um, so I've been in the States now for about 11 years, uh, moving from a refugee camp uh, in Kenya. Uh, that is uh, northeastern part of Kenya. It had the uh, largest refugee settlement in the world at that time. I think right now the number has been increasing, uh, decreasing due to government requiring people to um, shut the, the, gov uh, the, the camps down. But um, long story short, we moved to Kenya when I was about six or seven years old at that time. Uh, my parents had to flee war-torn uh, South Sudan uh, due to um, civil war. And so uh, the journey definitely is an interesting one, uh, having to go from one country to another to seek for a better life. And um, definitely my parents have uh, had these concepts where they could find somewhere where their kids will have better education and have, you know, stay in a peaceful, uh, peaceful state or a peaceful space where they can enjoy life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you spent 13 years uh, in a refugee camp and, you know, you're a software engineer. How, how did that happened were you able to learn software engineering at the refugee camp or was that all that you learned once you came here uh actually i learned all of this when i came here i remember the <laughs> first time i got uh, introduced to computers was actually not computers but typewriters uh there were typewriters at a at a library that i was at and they only had about three or four typewriters i'm talking about 2006 right the world already had <laughs> computers and everything and smartphones we had typewriters um so i started playing with typewriters you know this mechanical thing and i liked it um then i wanted something a little bit better like i knew i could actually take this typewriter you know uh, apart and put it back together but you're not allowed that in labor um fast forward when i knew that i was going to come to the united states i already heard of bill gates i've already heard of like this big uh, software, you know, guys. Um, but I also got my first hand on a computer, a Windows XP or Windows 98. Um, that's when I was like, wow, this thing is fantastic, right? But my background as a kid was always figuring things out and just wanting to build something out of nothing or just playing with uh, circuit boards, uh, circuit 
boats uh, and um, um, and electronics and all this kind of stuff. Like it's it's fun, right? Um, so by the time I already started to play with the computers at the library, uh, I found myself really interested in how things were working on the computer. You know, I was doing CMD command, you know, dir and all this kind of stuff. It was amazing. The, the time I moved here is when I thought, okay, since I like uh, logical things or just fixing things in general, I might as well just study computer science. And I was living not so far away from Microsoft at that time too. So I found myself gradually uh, studying computer science and doing as many projects as I can. Um, and that's where, and then I went to study computer science at both uh, Bellevue College, went to City University, um, and then went to uh, Central Washington University where I studied uh, more computer science and software engineering. Nice, nice. Um, and so, you know, when you think about your journey and where you've come from and, you know, how you've been able to, uh, you know, essentially drive yourself to learn software engineering and so forth. Um, you know, I know you're doing a lot of things right now where you're working with, uh, you know, folks in Africa, for example, and, and uh, you know, helping them with learning how to code and learning how to program, as well as, you know, software engineering um, and having them do work. I'd love if you could touch a little bit about, about that. Yeah, um, I think uh, being in the States, I've seen how privileged I am in many ways. And I've also seen how there's so many opportunities that I can tap in. Uh, because I have the drive uh, with the opportunity in place, I'm able to find what I can do with my life. But um, when I look back, um, putting myself in that same shoes, I would have not seen this, uh, I, would not see, I would have not seen or assumed or even thought that I would be where I am today if I was still there, right? And my goal is that in many ways, for kids uh, living in underprivileged places in Africa, they definitely um, would need something that can turn it into a, um, uh, you see, knowledge-based education that can help them um, sort of like take, you know, get away out of the poverty that they're in. And I don't think any government anytime soon in Africa or in some part of Africa is going to realize that Africa needs to move into a knowledge-based, uh, what do you call, continent. And that one hasn't been happening uh, for so long. So my goal really is to start slowly. And if I can train 10, 20 software developers in Africa in the next five years or 10 years, those people will be people that will create the next, uh, uh, what do you call, software engineer, uh, software platforms that would help you know, run their villages or run their cities or their towns. And, and that is sort of like my goal. Like I want to have like that tech culture effect that can, uh, eventually spread, you know, like a virus, but in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you said something that I thought was really interesting about, you know, Africa becoming like a knowledge-based um, place and so forth, or focusing on that. And, you know, what, what are the things that you think it takes for, for that to happen? Uh, you know, I know there's a couple different companies that have built out uh, engineering forces in Africa, like uh, Andela mm -hmm. and some of these other places. Um, you know, curious just what your thoughts are on over that. How is the level of uh, software engineering talent uh, that is in Africa in some of these places and so forth? Yeah, I think uh, companies like Andela and there's another one that I that just came across. Um, I don't remember what the name exactly is. Uh, they were able to, because here's the thing, about 
80% of African population is uh, they're all young people, right? They're all hungry, ready to just innovate. Um, an example is Nigeria. Nigeria has about 200 million people. That means there's so many talents that definitely can be tapped, right? Um, having that in place, I think these companies are doing so great that they're able to train these um, software engineers who have not gone through this um, regular, uh, what do you call it, traditional education system of four years going to a university studying uh, computer science. Um, and they're able to pick it up pretty fast and, and be ready in less than 12 months to actually do the job. So I think that the potential is there. It's just that this, you know, those companies have figured out that you know, if we are able to um, provide this uh, young, you know, young minds the, the knowledge that they need, they will eventually become a global competitor in terms of, um, of skills and talents. Right? They 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 already paved a ground that yes, you can literally have uh, African uh, African engineers that can work in really complex applications, and you can definitely invest in Africa in many ways um, through Andela or through things like we were, we are do, we are doing right now. The first thing we're trying to do really is uh, uh, find kids, like be able to find a couple like uh, kiosks or schools, and be able to like. Uh, give them because we already have the software but we also want to provide them the computers and the internet that they need in order to be able to learn because these kids will not you know they don't have that and the parents can't afford it so once we are able to create that um eventually uh those kids when they grow up they will definitely see themselves becoming somebody else if they don't become like the software engineers they want they could become the people that might run those you know, companies that are gonna be created because they already have a fundamental understanding of how the world runs in terms of software um, and, and entrepreneurship. And actually we wanna focus on entrepreneurship as well um, because you can't have software without people who can actually take the product to the next level. Yeah, sure. Sure. That makes sense. So, you know, I want to move into kind of just emerging tech and payments and so forth. So, you know, uh, particularly like in Africa, I can't remember the name of the company, but there's that major payments company uh, that, yeah, that they do a lot of things, via, you know, via phone, right? Because when you, uh, you know, Africa is considered a, a mobile first, um, you know, continent essentially, right? Where there wasn't a ton of people that had computers, but most have, you know, phones now. And so, you know, not just in Africa, but just in general, like, what are your thoughts on opportunities when it comes to, um, you know, these countries that don't have legacy infrastructure uh, and are able to, and from a computer science standpoint, um, and are able to, you know, just come jump right into the new world and, and adapt to that? You know, it seems like that can create some interesting opportunities uh, to leapfrog other countries or other scenarios uh, you know, based off of that. And I know uh, in Africa, for instance, there's there's actually also a, um, uh, a higher understanding of cryptocurrency and things like that. I'd love if you could touch on those elements. Yeah, I would love to go and run on that. Um, there is definitely a high spike in terms of uh, mobile usage in Africa. Um, that has not only been recently, I think it has been since 2005. Um, in 2006, I've had my first phone already. Um, I used it to transfer money from, you know, by, by sending a text or they call it SMS. I think it's sort of a short message something. So I would do that basically hash, you know, uh, pound sign, you know, we call it hash, hash. Uh, you know, you put a, 
the amount and then I think the number of the person that you want to send the money to and boom, it goes there, right? Oh, got it. Sending payments via SMS. SMS, yep, exactly. Yeah, by by yeah. having like different commands. Interesting. Exactly, yep. yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's probably like one of the most intuitive and most simplest way of using mobile payment, like period. Mm-hmm. It, it can never get any simpler than that, right? You don't need to have a beautiful interface. Um, you don't need to have anything else. You just need to have that screen that shows the numbers and your, your dial pad. That's it. And I think um, M-Pesa has done a really great job. There's companies such as like Safaricom, MTN, all this stuff. Um, these are the players that, you know, help with the, with the uh, what do you call the adoption of sort of like many mobile payment systems or, or just technology in general. And you, you mentioned something about Africa just leapfrogging to the newest things or the newest and the best, right? And uh, to say that, I, first of all, I want to be able to say this. Um, I think every continent or every country in this world today have found the strength, right? After, uh, China already knew that they can be the two manufacturers for the world, so that people can buy things from them, they can use it to build things, right? And the U.S. like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna innovate, we're gonna do this so that people can use our innovation um, to better the world. So is Europe, so is other places. Now, Africa needs to find its own uh, sort of like spot in this in this global um, economy. And there's so many ways for Africa to do that. And um, I think the emergence, the emerging technology such as uh, Bitcoin and crypto, just cryptocurrency in general, I think it would have a, a major impact in Africa in many ways because the African currency, or not the African currency, because it's nothing as African currency, but the currencies that are in individual countries in Africa has been suffering political, uh, uh, what do you call it, upheaval or just... Uh, yeah, just massive inflation as a result of just the way it's run. Yep, exactly. And it's really affecting how businesses are being transacted. And having it now the, the level of like you said, the level of cryptocurrency understanding in Africa has really skyrocketed. So many people understand um how cryptocurrency work. Um there is an example of a com- company that is trying to do a financial inclusion. It's called I think Moja Moja Loop. And it's based actually here in, in Bellevue. And it's been, I think, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They are creating a crypto-based payment system using the blockchain to uh, facilitate payment payments and make it a lot easier for people in the third world to be able to carry uh, transactions. And I think it's pretty amazing. Uh, I haven't really read much into it because I myself, I have uh, affinity for fintech, um, but I haven't really d- dove into it deeply because I need sure. to get things done. First. But Africa definitely has can position itself to jump into the new stuff. But I think it needs to first of all establish itself as a specific type of uh, play in the industry. It can't just keep jumping from one technology to another without creating its own base, right? Mm-hmm. So it needs to be able to let's say create infrastructure for um, for uh, for internet access. Um, it needs to be able to understand uh, that. Um, in order to move forward, we need stability, right? Without stability in a country uh, or in a continent that's huge, um, even the newest and the best technologies would not even grow as much as we would expect it. It would possibly 
or it will probably grow in certain areas like Rwanda, which is doing a really great job by, um, by really educating its people to code, by educating its people to, to you know, kind of like just understand the world around it and be able to build a powerhouse, you know, a tiny long, uh, landlocked country in Africa doing way better than most countries that we think today. And one of probably the cleanest city in the world today. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So, you know, when we think about just payments overall and just overall adoption of, of uh, call it mobile first uh, tech, um, you know, how, how has that evolved uh, in Africa or just in, in your, in your mind, like what, what can people in the United States from a technology standpoint learn from uh, developing nations to how we in the U S or, you know, Europe, are thinking about payments and cryptocurrency? Like what, what are the things that we can learn from them and, and apply here? I think um, that's, that's a very good question. I've not been in Africa in a long time to even know. Well, you know, like for, for example, like what I think about is, is, you know, a lot in that mobile first, you know, mentality, right? And so like, you know, as much as people say like they, you know, cash needs to go away, like a lot, frankly, a lot of people still you know, hold cash because they, they have to, because that's how they're getting paid. But, you mm -hmm. know, I know in Africa um, and, you know, in parts of, of, of Asia, it's like you're, you're still primarily paid, you know, digitally. And so I, I wonder, you know, you know, is this coronavirus something that, that it mean, now everybody starts thinking more in this digital context um, and they don't want it? To, is that the driver or is it just that, or does it even matter? Like, do, do we need to? I'm just, I just love your kind of uh, opinions on that. Yeah, uh, that's actually, okay. I have never met any sort of like opinion on that, but I think um, I think definitely, let's just talk about the coronavirus uh, pandemic. I think it has in many ways uh, opened the eyes of most of the, uh, what they call uh, sovereign leaders in Africa in terms of how to think about um, their economies, right? And so for them to be able to even improve the economy, they will have to start thinking, okay, now, um, you know, of course, inflation has affected how people, you know, transact. Um, and, and also money is just like, it's a commodity that is just like everywhere. Like now, I don't know if the government has to like print money all the time and get the money, like, I don't know, uh, exported or imported, whatever that is. Um, but I think that in terms of payment, um, definitely, there's some move that uh, there's a company called, I think, Okara or something like that in Nigeria that has already, I think that's the right name. Uh, it has already positioned itself to be a leading uh, payment platform, I think, in Nigeria. It's trying to um, take this, like, you know, create this cashless society where people will not depend on their cash anymore, where you have to have this, like, electronics. And I think that. Uh, the the West or mostly America and, and, and other places that are really digitally going for it, went further. Um, I think they I think the only thing that would have learned from how things are running in Africa is that the adoption for things is probably easy in Africa because there, there's, there's like there's not so many regulations in place that will hinder any type of like uh, technology advancement, right? Because mm -hmm. there's really no added loss in place. And, and in terms of like privacy, I think this will, this will probably, probably be the only time when Africa would be like, yeah, you know, we don't care about privacy, let's do whatever, right? And when the countries 
are becoming more advanced, that's when people will be like, oh, okay, now let's hold on. Now that we are at this stage in our lives, uh, 20 years from now, you know, um, now we need to understand what does those technologies do? Do they affect us as, uh, as citizens uh, of the world that our information is being used for certain things or all this kind of stuff? So that's when that's con those concerns can come later. But at this point, I think adoption for anything is what uh, other places in the world would definitely need to understand. Like cryptocurrency, for example, when it started, I think the adoption rate, you even know this very well, in the US has been really slow, right? Like our government does do not understand like that this thing is a potential that they can monitor almost every type of like um, funds issuing and all this kind of stuff. Because right now, for example, with the, um, with, the, with the stimulus package where you have companies that are already worth billions of millions that are receiving millions of stimulus package, this money should have not really gone to those companies. They should have gone yeah. to companies that were making less than a million a year that have probably like 50 employees, right? And right. We, because this, because we're not using cryptocurrency or any type of like digital currency that we can track who is actually being given or issued the money, in this point, at this point, that it's hard for us to like wanna say, yeah, company A is given this money and they're not supposed to get this money. But also at the yeah. same time, we have created this like loose end where, you know, anything can happen because we we want. Um, you know, as a, as a politician, I'm talking about as, as myself, but as a politician, since I have a hand in specific companies, I want these companies to get this money because I know I'm going to get a share out of it. So the government really would be able to use something like this to improve its own uh, funding-based uh, society. Yeah. Yeah, no, so you actually made me think of an interesting question uh, that I feel like you, you'll have a way to answer and so you know when we talk about digital currency and digital assets and blockchain you know like there's there's good and bad um you know blockchain obviously uh it, it still has a lot to prove out and there's there's great potential there but um you know for the most part it's still on its way um for scale right and so uh one of the issues that have come up when it when people think about digital dollars digital assets or even a u.s digital dollar is um, you know privacy and security and the traceability element, right? Because like if you are sending things via blockchain, uh, mm -hmm. you know you could you could essentially measure everything and see. And so um, you know I'd love to talk about that from a technical aspect, right? Because you, you touched on that a little bit when you're saying like, hey, like if there was some level of cryptocurrency you know, in these stimuluses, you'd be able to track it better. And like, that might seem strange to someone that doesn't necessarily know how code works, right? Because they're like, well, what are you talking about? Like, it's just, you know, you send it and you see it, but um, it's more the auditability function of it, right? Yep. And like, yep. ba basically building commands, you know, to, to understand the, so I'm not saying that you can't figure that out. However, it's done now, it's just a lot more laborsome and cumbersome. And that's why, you know, probably things get forgotten. So I'd love if you could kind of just talk about just, you know, from a code base standpoint, um, when we think about digital currency or crypto, like why that's interesting from an auditability standpoint. And mind you, this might not be like the best solution when it comes to decentralization or to, you know, remaining anonymous or whatever those are of things that, you know, there's other aspects of that. Like, you know, one of the things that make Bitcoin really interesting, right, is that you can be in self-control, but in a non-Bitcoin context of just digital cash, we're still going to need digital cash. Let's talk about the code reasons for that. Yeah. Um, 
in many ways, I think cash right now is already digitized because we use credit cards, right? Um, but also, I think that each cash, uh, each, each uh, what do you call note that is being released by the Federal Bureau, um, or is it like the, the Feds? It has a specific identification, right? And I don't want to like spend my time on this little, uh, this one note, but adding traceability in terms of like code, I think um, in many ways, it is basically trying to understand that each dollar that's being spent is actually being spent uh, according to what it actually has been uh, allocated for. So when we talk about, uh, when we talk about uh, auditing, I think in many ways, many, many companies that are large, larger corporations, we definitely want to understand that, okay, we have allocated X amount of money into this fund to, to be done, uh, to be used for ABCD. And if any single dollar with this code has not been used for that and went into someone's pocket, uh, then there is a fraud that has been, you know, sort of like, uh, that have taken place in regards to where the fund is supposed to be. And the, the idea here is that it's actually easier to trace it, you know, in a way that the computer or the code itself is, is, is pretty smart enough to just basically understand that, yes, there is X amount of number of currency with this type of code that has been allocated in this specific place. And if any of this code has missed, is being transferred into a different type of uh, funds, then there's an issue. And it's easy to trace that, right? Because we know that it's mutable. Once you remove something from a place or allocate something from a location that it's not supposed to be, then you know that something, uh, something suspicious has happened, as opposed to like using a database where you can just change numbers and the numbers will look still fine, but the money is not being used where it's supposed to be. Um, I don't know if that really answers the question. I don't want to get too deep into like the code part of it. No, 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 but that, that, that's what I want to. Let's get deep on that code part. Cause you know, I, I think just, you know, sure it might go over the head of some people, but when we think about that is that's really what we're talking about here. It's not like, you know, yes, you can send information, you can send things digitally today. Um, but uh, a lot of these things can be, you know, edited, changed. Uh, there's one ledger type of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and, and don't get me wrong, there's definitely problems with this. There's definitely problems with, um, you know, tracing every transaction, tracing every dollar. And, you know, there's security and privacy concerns that I think are very, very valid, of course. But, you know, yeah, I think just for people to understand from a code standpoint, like why that, why, you know, the government or why someone might want that is, is super interesting because like you're saying is that if you can trace uh, where funds are going and how it's being spent, um, if you are in a government context, that makes a lot of sense, you know, to make sure that things are getting distributed properly. Um, again, there's other issues there, right? Like if, if, that, if that gets abused or, um, you know, if people are then prevented from spending their own digital currencies that they have, you know, uh, in the future or whatever, like those are other issues and other problems that obviously need to be solved. But yeah, just thinking from the code standpoint. So, you know, if we're going to think about how cryptocurrency is used in a digital dollar context or like China has their own cryptocurrency and they're thinking about blockchain, one of the interesting things about China, for example, is that they're tying currency to um, 
to digital identity, digital currency to digital identity. And so, right, everything that you track or you spend or, or do is, is, is tracked and it's, you know, it kind of also fits the narrative of how, um, you know, China's run for that, for that matter, right? You know, uh, a, a very much a, um, a visible um, state. And so, you know, in the United States where we, you know, pride ourselves on freedom and, and our liberties and so forth, um, while, you know, digital currency could be very interesting from a payment standpoint, um, you know, there are going to be some concerns by people when it comes to them thinking about, uh, you know, all their payments being tracked or traced. And, you know, maybe what these people aren't realizing also is that when they do spend on, um, you know, MasterCard or Visa, it's still tracked or traced. It's just that it's not necessarily, it's in private hands, not in public hands. So, um, yeah, I, there, there's definitely things to think about when it comes to how we uh, uh, consider digital currencies, um, you know, at mass, but uh, but there's no doubt it's going to come and happen. Yeah, I mean, I like the point that you mentioned that still today we track things, right? That is, that's absolutely correct. And the idea that people are, you know, crying for their, uh, crying for their, what do you call it? Um, privacy and that people are gonna like track them and those kind of stuff. We definitely understand that there's gonna be definitely that type of aspect in almost every uh, new technology that's coming into into play. And with that, even um, I think if if we are to, if let's say if we are to use cryptocurrency to tie to like let's say credit score, right? I think it would probably play a better role. As opposed to like having handful of companies like Ecofax trying to like calculate, you know, your, you know, I don't know, somehow getting your information and using it to get you a credit score, right? Oh, sure. Yeah, because there's so much human error capabilities or there's like misperceptions as well or, yeah. you know, things like that. Like maybe you get a, a poor medical record or you don't pay for something on your medical record for, or sorry, on your uh, medical bill. Uh, mm -hmm. And then that affects your score. Um, yeah. And and also to even add on top of that, um, thank you for bringing, making me think right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think, um, so going into the idea of like the Equifax and credit score and all this kind of stuff, um, I know that the people that have paid off sort of like their loans and all this kind of stuff, but still sometimes it does not reflect onto their credit score after probably a couple months. Let's say you paid everything today, um, if I was using digital currency and somehow the audits for my payment should happen instantaneously, like I should have my score go to 900 right away as soon as I take, uh, as soon as I, as soon as I took care of my, uh, what do you call my, my payments, right? Yeah. And, and in many ways, if somebody is sent to a collection, right? Um, sometimes the collections do not report back that this thing has been paid off. It takes them probably like a week or two in order to get that thing handed over. Yeah. So the latency between all the services is definitely affecting how fast we could have like got information into place and be able to like say that yes, this indeed did happen and that um, that it was secure and all this kind of stuff. And so you don't have anyone uh, fraudulently trying to even take money from you while it is not even some of like the 
like payment that you have to pay. Totally. Yeah. Like we all talk about digital currency and like I had someone send me, you know, cash or send me money uh, via uh, an ACH and it's been pending, you know, for more days than it probably should. And mm-hmm. it's like, that wouldn't happen right in a crypto or, or digital context because it's, it's just mapped, you know, to that ledger immediately, essentially. Well, I shouldn't say sure it takes time to confirm the transaction, yeah. but you know, like, yes, I'm getting my money digitally. Yes. The bank is kind of staking or holding the, the funds and like letting me have some access to it, but I want all access to it because I need all access to it. But um, you know, these are why you know, just digital currency or sending payments via you know, in a crypto context is, is so appealing because of the fact yeah. that it's, it, you know, it's essentially instant cash. Well, absolutely. No, I, I, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I, and I think, um, I don't want to say this, um, um, heads of state in Africa would definitely not want a system like that as of now, but, um, I think that private companies are the only companies that will definitely bring those technologies in Africa in general, uh, due to the fact that, like most of these head states are definitely corrupted. Like sure. every, every money that has been given by the World Bank for them to develop roads, hospitals, schools, and stuff like that, those, those money, I would say 80% of it does not even go to the project that's supposed to be. Sure, yeah. And, well, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go, sorry. Yeah, and, and, and companies or uh, institutions like World Bank would definitely benefit from cryptocurrency uh, in itself, right? they will be able to, so here's the thing, if no one is holding these countries or these heads of states accountable for their frauds, then somebody has to, right? Because they, they individ, they, the citizens themselves can't do that because it is an, um, uh, what do you call it? It's a dictator sort of like type of uh, government where people yeah. um, don't, don't, cannot voice their, their concerns. And so in many ways, then the World Bank will be able to decide, look, we give you about, five billion dollars or ten billion dollars in order to fix ABCD and based on our record you have only spent two billion on that where is the rest of the um x amount that was supposed to be used right so totally yeah definitely yeah a lot of people think it you know from the government down but right when when nations are borrowing from each other or from the world bank um yeah and and you know what a lot of people don't realize when it comes to uh, these countries that are run by dictators, author- authoritarian rule is that uh, they benefit from hyperinflation, right? Like it, it, it's to their benefit to degrade their own currency uh, because it keeps their people oppressed. And, uh, you know, it's a hard thing for, you know, people in the West to kind of grasp so like, you know, why, why would you do that? It's like, oh, because it makes it easier. It's, it's a form of control, right? Well, absolutely. So, so, um, you know, Taban, uh, this has been a great conversation. You know, I'd love to leave you with the floor uh, and ask you a question. Uh, um, sorry, ask you to ask a question. So what is a question that you want to ask everybody uh, and have them think about as they go about their day? Uh, that's a good one. Um, my question for you is, it just, it's going to be a general one, um, a general question. Um, what do you expect to see change in the next six months as the coronavirus is either coming to an end or is here to stay? All right. Yeah. All right. What do you expect to change? I like that. 
Great, man. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show. Uh, what are some good ways that people can stay in touch with you? Yeah, people can follow me on LinkedIn uh, at Cosmos or Taban Cosmos. Uh, follow me on there. Uh, probably that's like the only place you can follow me professionally. Um, but if you want to also follow me on my uh, IG, you can follow me Cosmos Taban and on my Facebook would be Taban Cosmos. But I would prefer my LinkedIn because that's where I am, you know, I spend most of my time uh, responding to professional emails and people that want to collaborate. I am a collaborator, so if you want to collaborate and have some things you want to share with me, I'm definitely available there. Excellent. Excellent. Um, everybody, thank you for listening to another episode of the TEF podcast. Please make sure that you are subscribed uh, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, follow us on uh, YouTube and you can uh, follow me at, at JG Product on Twitter. Uh, and at TF Blockchain on Twitter as well. Uh, thanks so much. Please uh, rate and review. Uh, if you like this podcast, fill up those stars. It goes a long way and would really appreciate if you could uh, share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your day.